Part three of the Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner by Georg Gunther Freiherr von Forstner. Translated by Anna Crafts Codman with commentary by John Hayes Hammond, Jr. The Journal, Part Three. In this manner, on a fine March morning, we steered our course to the English coast to take an active part in the commercial war. Gently the waves splashed around the prow and glided over the lower deck. Our duty was to examine every merchantman we met with the object of destroying those of the enemy. The essential thing was to ascertain the nationality of the ships we stopped. On the following morning we were given several opportunities to fulfill our task. It is well known that the English merchantmen were ordered by their government to fly a neutral flag so as to avoid being captured by our warships. We all remember how, on one of her earlier trips through the war zone, the gigantic Lusitania received a wireless message to conceal the Union Jack and to fly the stars and stripes of the United States. But destiny, after all, overtook her at a later date. All of us U-boat commanders were told not to trust the nationality of any flag we saw, and to stop every steamer on our path and to examine her papers thoroughly. Even these might be falsified, and we must, therefore, judge for ourselves, according to the appearance of the crew and the way in which the ship was built, whether she were in reality a neutral. Of course, many neutrals had to suffer from the deceptions practiced by the English, and although their colors were painted on their sides, and they were lighted at night by electricity, yet this device could also be copied. Therefore, we were obliged to detain and examine all the ships we encountered, greatly to the inconvenience of the innocent ones. I will describe the manner in which a warship undertakes the search of a merchantman. Through flag signals, the merchantman is bidden to stop immediately. If he does not obey, the warship makes his orders more imperative by firing blank shot as a warning. If then the merchantman tries to escape, the warship is justified in hitting the runaway. On the other hand, if the steamer or sailboat obeys the summons, then the warship puts out a boat with an armed prize crew and an officer to look over the ship's papers. These consist of certificates of nationality, of the sailing port and port of destination, and they contain a bill of lading as to the nature of the cargo, also the names of the crew and a passenger list, if it is a passenger steamer. If a neutral ship carries contraband of war, this is either confiscated or destroyed. But if it exceeds half the total cargo, then this ship is also condemned. It is nearly impossible for a submarine to send a prize crew on board a big ship. Therefore, neutral states have given their captains the order to go in a ship's boat and deliver their papers themselves on board the submarine but they often annoyed us by a long parley and delay, and it was always with a feeling of disappointment that we were obliged to leave inactive our cannons and torpedoes, the crew sadly exclaiming, 
after all they were only neutrals one sunny afternoon we were in the act of examining the papers of a dutch steamer that we had stopped in the neighborhood of the meuse lightship when we perceived on the horizon another steamer coming rapidly towards us and we judged by its outline that it was of english construction the steamer we were examining proved to be unobjectionable in every respect and sailing only between neutral ports so we dismissed it and just as it was departing the english steamer evidently apprehending our presence turned about in great haste in hope to escape from us and steered with full steam ahead towards the english shores to seek the protection of the ships on the watch patrolling the english coast the english captain well knew what fate awaited him if he fell into the hands of a wicked german u-boat mighty clouds of smoke rose from her funnels giving evidence of the active endeavors of the stokers in the boiler room to bring the engines up to their highest speed and before we had time to give the signal to stop the steamer was in flight meanwhile we had also put on all steam in pursuit and drove our engines to their utmost capacity the english ship was going at a great pace and we had many knots to cover before we could catch up with her to impose our commands for she paid no heed to the international flag signal we had hoisted stop at once or we fire and she was striving her uttermost to reach a zone of safety our prow plunged into the surging seas and showered boat and crew alike with silvery sparkling foam the engines were being urged to their greatest power and the whir of the propeller proved that below at the motor valves each man was doing his very best anxiously we measured the distance that still separated us from our prey was it diminishing or would they get away from us before our guns could take effect joyfully we saw the interval lessening between us and before long our first warning shot across her bow raised a high threatening column of water but still the englishman hoped to escape from us and the thick smoke belching from the funnels showed that the stokers were shoveling more and more coal into the glowing furnace they well knew what risk they had to run even after two well-aimed shots were discharged from the steel mouths of our cannons right and left on either side of the fugitive which must have warned the captain that the next shot would undoubtedly strike the stern he was still resolved neither to stop nor surrender nothing now remained for us but to use our last means to enforce our will with a whistling sound a shell flew from the muzzle of our cannon and a few seconds later fell with a loud crash in a cloud of smoke on the rear deck of the steamer this produced the desired effect immediately the steamer stopped and informed us by three quick blasts from the steam whistle the international signal that the engines would be reversed and the ship stopped the captain had given up his wild race huge white clouds from the uselessly accumulated steam rose from the funnels and to our signal abandoned the ship at once the Englishman replied with a heavy heart by hoisting a white and red striped pennon, the preconcerted international sign that our order had been understood and was being obeyed. 
This small striped pennon has a deep significance. It means that a captain accepts this most painful necessity, knowing that his dear old boat will soon lie at the bottom of the sea. Truly a difficult decision for the captain of a proud ship to make. The crew were by this time reconciled to their fate, and as we drew near to parley with the captain, the lifeboats were launched, the men tossed in their belongings, and, jumping in, took their places at the oars. It need hardly be said that we, on the other hand, were pleased with our capture. I have often shaken hands with the gunner who had fired the last deadly shot, for we waste no emotion over our adversary's fate. With every enemy's ship sent to the bottom, one hope of the hated foe is annihilated. We simply pay off our account against their criminal wish to starve all our people, our women, and our children, as they are unable to beat us in open fight with polished steel. Ought we not, therefore, to rejoice in our justifiable satisfaction? After the crew had left in two boats the blazing hull of the Warden of Harwich, a well-directed shot was aimed at the water-line. Mighty jets of water poured into the rear storeroom, and the heavy listing of the ship showed that her last hour had struck. We beckoned to the captain to row up beside us and deliver his papers. He stepped silently on board, and we exchanged salutes. As I saw that two boatloads of twenty-five men were lying off within hearing on either side of us, I took this opportunity to admonish the captain about his foolhardy attempt to escape, and how he thereby had endangered the lives of his crew. The latter, realizing the justice of my remarks, thanked us for having saved them by respectfully lifting their caps. The captain awkwardly excused himself by saying he had simply hoped to get away. I then notified these people whom we had saved that we would take them in tow to the Muse lightship. At this, the fine-looking old captain realized to what useless dangers he had exposed his men and what cause he had to be grateful to us. With tears in his eyes he seized my hand and murmured his thanks. I willingly took his outstretched hand. At that instant a Dutch pilot steamboat, which had been attracted to the spot by the sound of firing, hove in sight, and I committed the Englishman to its care. We all desired, before departing in opposite directions, to witness the final sinking of the steamer, for apparently the English also wanted to see the last of their fine ship, and we awaited the great moment in silence. We had not long to wait. The stern of the ship sank deeper and deeper, whereas the bow rose sharply in the air, till at last with a loud gurgle the whole steamer was drawn down, and the waters bubbled and roared over the sunken wreck. There was now one less fine ship of the English merchant marine afloat on the ocean. We had all seen enough, and each one went his way. Our course was pointed westward towards new endeavors, while the Dutchmen steered for the nearest port in order to land the shipwrecked crew. I think it was our English friends who waved a friendly farewell from the deck of the pilot steamboat, in grateful recognition for our having saved their lives, although they may not actually have wished us off either sane. We read in the Dutch papers a few days later 
an accurate description of the sinking of the Lewarden, and the English captain was fain to acknowledge how well we had treated him. Every captain of an English steamer might have been treated in like manner had not the English government wished it otherwise. Chapter 6 The Capture of Two Prize Steamers The next day an opportunity offered itself to us which opened to submarines a new field of activity in the commercial war. It was a gray, misty morning. The sea was becalmed, and over the still waters a heavy vapor hung low like a veil before the rising sun. But little could be seen, and we had to keep a sharper lookout than usual to avoid running unawares into a hostile ship, and we also had to be ready for a sudden submersion. We strained all the more an attentive ear to every sound, for it is well known that in a fog, during a calm, we sailors can perceive the most distant noise that comes over the water. In time of peace, fog horns and whistles give warning of any approaching vessel, but in time of war, on the contrary, no vessel wishes to betray its presence. It is essential for us to have two men down below at listening posts, with their ears glued to the sides of the boat, to catch the throbbing of a propeller or the rush of waves dashing against the prow of a ship, or any suspicious vibrations, for these noises are easily discernible under sea, water being an excellent sound conductor. On this March morning we were all keenly intent on the approach of some ship. Many times already as we stood on the bridge we had been deceived by some unreal vision or some delusive sound. Our overstrained nerves transformed our too lively fancy into seeming reality. And in a thick fog objects are strangely magnified and distorted. A floating board may assume the shape of a boat or a motor-launch be taken for a steamer. I remember a little story about a man-of-war seeking to enter a harbor in a heavy fog. Everyone on board was looking in vain for a buoy to indicate the channel when the captain himself called out. It is for me, then, to point out the buoy. There it is. But as they drew near, the buoy, floating on the water, spread but a pair of wings and flew away in the shape of a gull and many a gull in a fog may have deceived other experienced seamen. But to return to our own adventures on this misty morning, we not only saw gulls rising from the sea and boards floating on the water, but we also encountered English mines adrift, which had parted from their moorings, and to these we thought it safer to give a wide berth. At last the fog lifted, and we discovered in the distance, a few knots away, a steamer. We immediately went in pursuit. Rapidly it steamed ahead, but we caught up with it and found it belonged to the Dutch Batavian line. But as it was steering for the English coast, towards the mouth of the Thames, we took for granted it carried a contraband cargo. We signaled for it to stop, but the steamer refused to obey our command and increased its speed. Having ascertained that we could easily overtake it, we spared our shot, which must be carefully preserved for more useful purposes. After a chase which lasted about three-quarters of an hour, only a thousand meters remained between us. 
the Dutch captain wisely gave up a further attempt to escape and awaited our orders. In compliance with my signal, he sent his first officer in a boat with the ship's papers. While we lay alongside the steamer, gently rocking to and fro, the crew and passengers flocked on deck to gaze at us with wondering eyes, and we, in return, tried to discover to what nationality they belonged. On reading the papers the officer handed me, I saw the steamer was the Batavian the Fourth, destined for London, carrying a cargo of provisions, which is contraband of war. I had to make a rapid decision as to the fate of the steamer, and I resolved to bring the Batavian into one of the Belgian ports now in our possession. No U-boat had ever attempted such a feat before, but why not try? Of course we had to cover a long distance with the imminent threat of being overtaken by English warships, but if we did succeed, it was a very fine catch, and after all, nothing venture, nothing have. Besides, the misty weather was in our favor, and it would only take a few hours to reach the protection of our batteries on the Flemish coast. The Dutch officer was notified that a prize crew would be at once sent on board his steamer to conduct it to the port of Zeebrugge. He opened wondering eyes, but made no protest, for he was fully aware of our cannons turned on his ship and of the loaded pistols of our crew. The crew and passengers on board the Dutchman were no less astounded when our prize command, consisting of one officer and one sailor, climbed up on deck. I could not well dispense myself with more men, and in case my prize was released by the English, it would be better they had so few prisoners of ours to take. The Dutch captain raised several objections at being led away captive in this manner, Above all, he was afraid of the German mines strewn before the entrance of Zeebrugge, but my officer reassured him by telling him we should lead the way, and he would therefore run no risk. He finally had to resign himself to his fate. So we proceeded towards the shores of Flanders, we in the proud consciousness of a new achievement, and the Dutchman lamenting over the seizure of his valuable cargo. The passengers must have wondered what was in store for them. Many of the ladies were lightly clad, having been roused in fright from their morning slumbers, and their anxious eyes stared at us, while we merrily looked back at them. Our officer on board exchanged continual signals with us, and we were soon conscious, with a feeling of envy, as we gazed through our field glasses, that he was getting on very friendly terms with the fair sex on board our prize. We had feared at first that he might have some disagreeable experiences, but his first message spelled, There are a great many ladies on board, and the second, We are having a delicious breakfast, and the third, The captain speaks excellent German. So after this we were quite reassured concerning him. An hour may have elapsed when a cloud of smoke on the eastern horizon announced the approach of another steamer, and the idea that we might perhaps capture a second prize ship was very alluring. The wisdom of abandoning for a while our first captive was considered somewhat doubtful. If we delayed, it might escape after darkness set in. 
but when I heard my officers exclaim, what a fine steamer, I decided to try for it. The Batavian was ordered to proceed slowly on the same course, and we would catch up with it later. Then, turning my attention to steamer number two, I made quickly in her direction to intercept her on her way to England. After half an hour's pursuit, we signaled for her to stop, and we discovered she was also Dutch. The captain, seeing it was useless to try and escape, put out a boat and came on board with the ship's papers. He seemed thoroughly displeased at the meeting, and hoped no doubt by coming himself to get away more easily, but of this expectation he was to be sadly disabused. On discovering that he was also carrying contraband of war, cases of eggs for London, I ordered him to follow us to Zeebrugge. One officer and a stoker, for I could not spare another sailor, accompanied him as our prize command on board his ship, the Zonstrom, and after a lapse of an hour and a half, followed by number two, we caught up with number one. The difficulty of my task can be easily imagined, for I was obliged to make the two steamers follow each other at a given interval, and at the same speed. Like a shepherd dog herding his flock, I had to cruise around my two captives and force them to steer a straight and even course, for one tried occasionally to outdistance the other, probably with the desire to escape in the foggy weather, which increased my fear of not reaching the Flemish coast before dark. But finally I got the steamers into line, and where persuasion might have failed, the menace of my cannons was doubtless my surest reason for success. My second officer on the Zanstrom signaled that everything was going to his liking, and that they were just sitting down to a savory meal of dropped eggs. This was reassuring news, and I could also feel tranquil on his behalf. Besides, in a few hours we should be safely under cover of our coast artillery. We notified the pilot depot by wireless to send us a pilot for each ship, and our messages having been acknowledged, we were certain of being warmly welcomed, and that every preparation would be made for the reception of our two prizes. The closer we got to the coast, the heavier the fog lay upon the water, a not unusual experience at sea. We had to advance with the greatest caution. Our U-boat led the way to confirm anew the assurance we had given our two steamers that they were in no danger of mines. We had to measure the depth of water repeatedly with the lead, and so doing we had to stop very often. Otherwise the lead, being dragged by the current, draws the line to an inaccurate length. It is but too easy a matter to run aground off the coast of Flanders, as submerged sandbanks are everywhere to be encountered, and this would have been in our present case a most unfortunate occurrence. This continual stopping rather disturbed the order of our march, for steamers are more unwieldy and less accustomed to rapid maneuvering than war vessels. Luckily all went well with us, for after a fine trip of several hours we gladly greeted our German guard ships lying off the port of Zeebrugge, and the lighthouse on the mole beckoned to us from afar through the thin afternoon mist. We quickly surrendered our two captives to the patrol of the port authorities, into whose care and surveillance they were now entrusted. Our job for the day was over, 
and we could joyfully hurry to our berth within the harbor. We passed along the tremendous stone quay of the artificial port of Zeburga. It extends several kilometers, and was built by Leopold II with English money. It had cost many, many millions, and was intended to serve quite another purpose than its present one. We could look with defiance at the mouth of our German cannons that gaped over the highest edge of the jetty towards the sea, as if awaiting the foe. Further up on the mole, instead of English troops that the king would so gladly have sent over in transports to march through neutral Belgium and pay us an uninvited visit, stood side by side our own brave fellows of the army and of the navy. Men from every branch of the service in their different uniforms were visible as they crowded on the pier to witness our arrival with our two prize boats, for the news of this unusual capture had already spread far and wide, and they all wanted to satisfy their curiosity. Their enthusiasm would have been even greater had they guessed that concealed within the hull of our two vessels an Easter feast of undreamed-of dainties lay in store for them. But even without this incentive, a tremendous cheer from a thousand throats hailed our appearance as we rounded the mole, and our thirty voices returned as hearty, if not as loud, a three times repeated cheer for the garrison of Zeburga. Our tow-lines were caught by the eager hands of the sailors, and in a jiffy we were lying securely alongside the quay, safe in port to rest in peace a day or two after a many days' cruise, enlivened by such exciting events. Our friends of the Navy, whom we had not seen since the beginning of the war, came to visit us at once. Much gay news was exchanged, and also sad regrets expressed at the loss of dear fallen comrades. Shortly afterwards, one of the Dutch captains, escorted by two guards, asked me to grant him an interview, and I was glad to make his personal acquaintance. We discussed, over a little glass of port wine, which we were both surely entitled to, the incidents of the day, and he gave vent to his affliction at being thus seized by ejaculating, A great steamer like mine, to be captured by a little beast like yours? I could sympathize with his feelings, for he had sustained a severe pecuniary loss, and he well knew what would become of his ship and cargo, according to prize law. But I suspected he found some consolation in having a companion in misfortune, for the other Dutch captain had to submit to the same conditions. We shook hands and parted excellent friends, knowing that each one of us had only accomplished his duty. End of Part 3